0: We're into a series in Galatians. Uh, I'm going to try something a little bit new with the PowerPoint this morning. Um, you can tell me afterwards whether it's distracting or whether you like it, but it was probably a good thing with you guys being in, hopefully um, keep you on board and just spur you on to some thinking. But Galatians is its one of these prime statements of the gospel. Galatians and Romans, uh, out of Paul's letters in the New Testament, uh, are the two places where the gospel is... is spelt out uh, in its clearest and in its greatest detail. And today, uh, so for the whole series, the title is this, Getting the Gospel Right, and we'll talk more about that uh, later on. And today, we're just going to try and lay the, lay the groundwork for getting the gospel right. But we need a little bit of background um, first, um, so we'll turn to Galatians 1 in a minute. But I just want to ask who has got Celtic roots here this morning? Who's got Celtic roots? Let's see. Okay. Yeah, well, I can... Okay, here are folks with Celtic roots. Well, let's have our our map. Okay. Um, There is the United Kingdom. I I presume when I looked this up, I didn't ask for a blue blob, but I guess the blue blob is where we are um, today. Um, And the place we're talking about is this lump of land that sticks out, um, which on this map is called Turkey. So this is a modern-day map. You have Turkey down the bottom right-hand corner. Underneath Turkey... Um, you have Syria, underneath Syria you have Lebanon, um, and underneath Lebanon you have Israel. I couldn't get it all on the one map. It's kind of, you know, not very good at these kind of things. But next slide. If you think that lump that stuck out was Turkey, here it is, um, kind of magnified, and here it is as it was um, at Paul's time. Now, back in about 277 B.C., particularly the north of this kind of area, had been um, conquered, actually, by the Gauls, and the Gauls were actually the same people who became the Celts. There was a great Celtic uh, migration uh, from that way, that way, I can never get east and west, right, okay, from, from east to west, um, and obviously, Celts and ending up in, in, in Wales, Scotland uh, and, and Ireland, so there was this great Celtic migration. But in, but in 277 BC, the Celts were in the north of this period, and north of this area. Um, and so they were called al- alternately um, Celts or Gauls, uh, and they be hence, hence Galatians, and hence the kingdom of Galatia. So there was this little kingdom of Galatia uh, in, in the north, but it became a Roman province. There was a bit of toing and froing uh, and a lot of fighting over the region, but it became a Roman province in, in, in twenty-five BC. And so when it became a Roman province, Galatia became a term for a slightly bigger area, and not just that bit with the Celts in it. And so we can see on this map um, that the, at the time of Paul's first missionary journey, that's about kind of forty-eight um, sorry, forty-six to forty-eight. AD, Paul uh, was in this church in Antioch, and notice on the map as well, just to confuse you, there's two Antiochs, okay, this one's known as Syrian Antioch, for obvious reasons, that one's known as Pisidian Antioch, because it's in Pisidia, Um, Paul set off from this Antioch and via Cyprus, he went into this um, region uh, of Galatia, and he planted churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and you can read that in Acts, it's about um, around about uh, Acts 13, so if the resurrection and Pentecost are about A.D. 30, Paul became a Christian about A.D. 33. His first missionary journey was um, A.D. 46 to 48. But within a couple of years, I reckon, things had started to go wrong. If we have the next slide. Next slide. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Shouting at him. We read, about the, we read something interesting happened in Acts 15. And it says, certain people came down from Judea. Um, on our map, that's up. Okay, I don't know why, the, why it's down. Uh, but certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, uh, that place where Paul was, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And that's a really uh, important thought to hold on to. Some teachers had come, Um, from Jerusalem or the churches in Judea, and they were going to the other churches uh, and saying, unless you get circumcised, unless you hold to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Uh, And Acts goes on to say, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. That's called the Jerusalem Council. That's about 50 A.D., And I think this letter to the Galatians either happens just before that um, or just after that. Um, Paul seems to have settled this question of of the law with the Galatians. So it's strange if he'd settled it with the Galatians, why do they have to meet in Jerusalem to settle it later on? Um, And equally the other way around, if they've settled it in Jerusalem in AD 50, why does Paul have to write to the Galatians? So I think these things are all in the mix, happening about the same time um, that Paul writes to the Galatians, but it is about this question. Do you need to do the Jewish things first to be saved? To be a Christian, do you need to be a Jew first? Do you need to get circumcised? And do you need to keep the special days and eat the special food? And that's what it's about. And we're going to find this is why Paul writes. So let's pick up then the text, Galatians chapter 1. And actually, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. really, at this point, Paul is just introducing himself and kind of laying the groundwork. And he says this, Galatians 1, page 1168 in the Bibles. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Usually at this point, Paul would say something nice. He would usually say, I give thanks for, I'm really pleased about, um, but he doesn't. Or does he say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Literally, let them be anathema, as we've already said. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You can, you can hear him hitting the table with his fist, can't you? Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we're just going to lay some groundwork, as Paul is doing in his letter, uh, so we're going to do the same this morning. Most of us here have been Christians for a while. We might be forgiven for thinking that we know the gospel by now. Yes, you might think, I need to be reminded about the gospel. Uh, I might be reminded, I need to be reminded to take note of it. And to come back to it, recognize that I'm a forgetful kind of person, but essentially um, I I know the gospel. But I'm not so forgetful, uh, I would lose sight of the gospel in itself. Because if, if that happened in church, we'd notice, wouldn't we? We would notice, wouldn't we? Well, hang on a minute. Here is a young church, just a few years old, and they have already lost sight of the gospel. They have been persuaded that God's grace needs a little bit of human help to work. It's not all about God's grace. It's about some things that people do. Now, what if we've lost sight of the gospel? I think we have. But we'll come back to that. I think we've been persuaded, if not in theory, then maybe in function, that God's grace actually requires some human help for it to work. God's grace is not enough to save us on its own. You see, I think that the gospel is, is, is quite a, like a fine machine. It's subtle. It's like a good um, Swiss watch movement. And a little grain of sand getting into your watch movement is enough to bring it to a halt. And then it's useful, useless, doesn't tell the time, it, it doesn't go, it doesn't do anything. And a good watch movement, you treat as precious, and you put it in a case for, for precisely that reason. Uh, and you protect it, uh, and you look after it, because just a tiny thing getting in can throw the whole thing awry. Or a little bit like putting petrol in your diesel car, okay? Petrol and diesel, hey, what's the difference? Okay, one's a little bit thicker, one's a little bit thinner. You know, burn at different temperatures. You know, you'd think they do the same kind of thing. They both burn. But I tell you you what, put the wrong thing in your car, and what happens? It simply doesn't move. It doesn't fire. Uh, It goes nowhere. So I just ask you, is the engine of your Christian life really firing? Is it causing you to go somewhere? And if not, well, maybe we've just, somewhere along the line, we've got the gospel wrong. Maybe just slightly wrong, but maybe we've got it wrong. So what we're going to attempt is to get the gospel right. And sometimes I think you have, we have the gospel, maybe we have the gospel right in theory, but maybe we're not putting it into practice in quite the direction it was supposed to go. And then you get like a kind of cross-threading. I don't know whether, you, you know, engineers out there amongst you, can you tell on there? Yes, you can just tell that that's kind of a, that's what a cross-threaded belt looks like. At least it is when you've managed to get the nut off. You know when you put it off uh, um, slightly wrong and then you take it off again and it's completely stripped The thing and and it's useless. But when it's cross-threaded, it uh, it doesn't seal, it doesn't tighten, it it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, You have deadlock. It doesn't go forwards, it doesn't go backwards. You're in a bind. And if that's, the state of your Christian life, it's not going forwards, it's not going backwards, but it's just kind of it's just kind of locked. Well, maybe we've got the gospel kind of cross-threaded. I'll tell you when this happens the most, it happens when you're putting tops on water bottles, okay, for all you mums and dads, okay, and you cross-thread the water bottle, and then it all comes apart in your son or daughter's lunchbox. And um, how are we going to get the gospel right? Well, today we're just going to lay some, lay some groundwork, okay, and we're going to look at the origins of the gospel first, gospel origins. Can we read that? Yeah, good. Paul opens with this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, in biblical times, you would open a letter with Fred to John, greetings. Okay, you can go back, look this up in Ezra. There's an interesting example. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher uh, of the law of God of heaven, Greetings. So Paul uses a standard greeting, but with a twist. It says, Paul, uh, an apostle. So that's quite a loaded statement. Because an apostle in any context is someone sent with the full authority uh, of the sender. But an apostle of Jesus is one commissioned by the living, living Jesus. And is someone who's uh, witnessed the, the resurrection. So uh, an apostle is one with full authority. Full authority of Christ. Um, And Paul spells it out in case uh, the Galatians have somehow kind of forgotten this. He he says, I'm not sent from men. You have received some spurious teachers who've come from Jerusalem, and you're following them, and they're leading you off uh, a blind alley. And he says, I am not a second-hand creed salesman. I'm a first-hand witness of the risen Jesus, sent directly to him, bringing you a direct revelation from God to you. And there is no one else in the chain. And ultimately, this comes from God the Father who initiates all things and who has rooted uh, our faith in testable history by raising Jesus from the dead. And if that wasn't enough, all the brothers with me, I'm not just a lone weirdo. Probably the church in Syrian Antioch. Gentle reminder that he doesn't stand alone. How does that help us in getting the gospel right? Well, the first step in getting the gospel right is to accept the correct authority. Galatians is a word directly delivered from God. The gospel is direct divine revelation. We start to get the gospel right by accepting the authority of scripture. Rob's going to come to that um, later in the year particularly the New Testament, delivered by the apostles. They were the appointed representatives of Jesus. Can I ask you a question? What authority do you have to disagree with somebody who met the risen Jesus in person and was commissioned by him? What authority do you have to come to this and lay your ideas upon it? Because this is the word that's come directly to us. From God. So one of the prime ways of getting the gospel wrong is to rely on our own invention or our own speculation or those around us. And can I just say, in the most polite kind of terms, it's not your opinion that matters or your workmates or your drinking buddies. It is the voice of God through the apostles. So if you're going to get the gospel right, come to it every time being ready to put yourself under its authority. Okay? That takes a little bit of in- intentional action. And Martin Luther said this. It's nearly 500 years, I think it's October sometime, since he nailed the 95 uh, Theses uh, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, and, uh, which was one of the launch points of the Reformation. But he says this, Would to God that we would gradually train our hearts to believe that the preacher's words are God's word. It's not an angel or a hundred thousand angels, but the divine majesty himself that is preaching there. To be sure, I don't hear this with my ears or see it with my eyes. All I hear is the voice of the preacher and I behold only a man before me. But I view the picture correctly if I add that the voice and words of the pastor are not his own words, and doctrine, but those of our Lord and God. It's not a prince, a king, or an archangel who I hear. It is he who declares that he is able to dispense the water of eternal life. When you come to the Bible when it's preached or you personally read it, you should come expecting to hear the voice of God and come ready to submit. So it's my job. um, Peter says that anyone... Uh, who speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very word of God. They should take it really seriously, so when Ernie comes, or Rob comes, or I come, or whoever speaks, we should speak as one who speaks the very words of God. It's such a serious commission. It's your responsibility to train your ears to hear it as the voice of Jesus. So there's, there's a really interesting thing um, that God says to Ezekiel. Uh, He says, my people come to you as they usually do and they sit before you to hear your words but they don't put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And listen to this, I think this is lovely. Well, lovely in a sad kind of way. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words but don't put them into practice. So God says to Ezekiel that these people... They come to you, they come to church on a Sunday morning, a bit like they would switch on the radio. It's kind of like a noise in the background, but they're not really hearing the voice of God. It's possible to listen to preaching, possible to come to the Bible as you would listen to the radio for a little bit of entertainment and there's some background noise. So gospel origins, getting to understand where the gospel comes from. But Paul then goes on to give them a, a little gospel outline so he continues his greeting, you remember, for, um, from Paul to the churches in Galatia, to those congregations we, we talked about earlier on. It's a circular letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you were writing a Greek letter, if you were a Greek person, you would have said, which means rejoice. And Paul's changed that subtly to charis, which means grace. May you have grace. And if you're, but if you were a Jew and you were opening your letter, you would say, Shalom. Peace. And so Paul sticks these two together grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you have peace with God through the sovereign and undeserved favour He's shown you. In what way? That the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself. It's a little tiny gospel summary, isn't it? We won't go into it in detail. Why does Jesus give himself? Because nothing else in time and space, nothing else in history or the width of the universe pays for human wrongdoing, only the clean life and the dirty death of Jesus. So he had to give himself, that's the gospel, because you and I had nothing we could give. Nothing which pays, nothing which atones, nothing which puts sin right. It is a rescue, and Christianity is a rescue religion. What are you rescued from? Well, Paul uses an interesting term here. He says, you've been rescued from the present evil age. Well, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if we kind of trusted in Christ, and then we'd kind of, you know, into some kind of new place, you know, into kind of heaven, heaven on earth, and it just happened immediately. and we kind of go, but we don't. Spiritually, we are seated with Christ um, in the heavenly realms. And we have peace with God through what Jesus has done. But physically, we're still here. (laughs) What a shame. So we're not freed from living in this present evil age, but we are freed from the power that this evil age might have over us. Free from the power and the penalty Uh, Of sin, so I think of it a little bit like um, I I think I'm trying to find an illustration, but it's a little bit like you're a kind of you're a deep sea diver. Okay, you, you know the guys who go down in the suit and they have the big helmet on and then they have a great big tube, you know, which goes up to the surface. They're in an environment that would kill them ordinarily, but they're plugged into life from another world. They're plugged into. Uh, oxygen uh, from the surface which feeds them uh, and and keeps them alive in this world in which they would otherwise be dead. And that life and breath that you get, the Holy Spirit, allows you to breathe underwater, as it were. And that's what it's like. We belong to another age. We belong to this age of the Spirit. um, But that age uh, won't come physically until Christ returns. In the meantime, we're kind of connected to it. I bet the Holy Spirit is like this tube that brings us life. How does it help us get the gospel right? You'll get the gospel right when you understand that you had absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Okay? You were uh, a spiritual corpse. Can I suggest you don't go onto Google Images and look up the word Corpse. Kind of gently traumatized me this morning. Okay. So this was kind of a... I don't know. I, I mean, I even kind of found pictures of coffins, but I kind of felt like it's just a little bit shocking to put a picture of a coffin this morning, but they, and I hope that's not a dead person. But you were a spiritual corpse. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were a moral dead loss, and you were a spiritual corpse. And God stepped into history... The father sending the Son to die and the Son obeys. And then sometime in your history, God stepped into your life, the Holy Spirit awakened your conscience and enabled you to take hold of Christ. So you will get the Gospel right when you understand that you could do nothing without the intervention of Christ. And you can do nothing without being connected to Christ. You need to suck The air of the gospel constantly down your tube, or to mix our metaphors, you are dependent on your connection uh, with the vine that is Christ. If we're going to live the life of the next age in a dead world, but very briefly, let's move on. What's happening? What's happened to the Galatians? Well, it is it is gospel desertion. Paul says, "I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting." the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and to turning to a different, a different gospel, which is really no gospel uh, at all. You see, we think we can, you know, we, we, we might change the gospel slightly, we, we might get it um, slightly wrong, but, but that's okay. But actually, when we get the gospel wrong, we desert Christ. And you think of the shame of these poor guys who are American soldiers, uh, and they're being shamed for for their actions. I think it's Second World War. How much more shaming to have deserted Christ. There is only one gospel, and you cannot add to it or take away from it, because then it ceases to be the gospel and you've deserted Christ. I think, I wonder whether what's happened to these Galatians is they've said, oh gosh, Jewish law Do we need to pay that? Do we not? And they kind of think, and maybe they're just confused because they've heard Paul. They've now heard these teachers come through from Judea. And maybe what they think is, well, let's just err on the side of safety and do both. We just kind of play it safe uh, and do both. Because it seems, if we we add a bit of something, if we do something that's a little bit um, too much, that's kind of erring on the safe side. And we, we, might, we might be tempted to agree because Paul says to the Corinthians, circumcision is, is nothing and, and um, uncircumcision is nothing. Actually, of itself, these things that they are tempted to get into, neither here nor there. Until, until you insist that it's necessary for salvation. And then it becomes anathema. Then it becomes a horror. Because to have insisted on adding something is to have lost their freedom in Christ. So how do we well a little bit more. Beware of people then who want to call you into their party. There are always people there will always people will be around Christians who will say well look you know if you come over here we've got it all and we know it all. Just beware. And beware of trying to please people. Here Paul says, am I trying to please people? He thinks that the reason they're getting circumcised and all this other stuff is because of it, at one level they're embarrassed. And they just want to keep right by people. Just want to keep their noses clean. But as a result, they've stepped away from the gospel. So you're going to stand a better chance of getting the gospel right if you can resist the urge to please people. Resist the urge to be a people pleaser before you are a God pleaser. Because if you're determined to be a God pleaser, then you won't fall for fads and for movements. But equally, you won't get drawn into kind of extras. I think this is probably a McDonald's thing, isn't it? You won't see the sides and extras um, as, as essentials. So you'll get the gospel right if you can manage not to insist on, on, on extras. Trivial example. We, we stand up for the offering. We, we did that earlier on. That's fine. It's neither here nor there. Paul would come down here and say, like circumcision, it's, it's neither here nor there. Until you insist That standing up for the offering is an essential extra which is necessary to salvation. Then it's anathema. Then it's a horror. Then it's a desertion of Christ. Then it's an undoing of the freedom that you have in Christ. So let's sum up. Here's the groundwork then for getting the gospel right. We're going to develop a number of these themes and, 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 and work on them, but here's the groundwork, the spade work uh, for getting the gospel right. Treat the Bible as the voice of God. Recognize your inability to start or maintain a relationship with God without his intervention. Resist the, the pressure to please people. Please God alone. Putting that into practical terms. God is speaking to me. Just say to yourself and work these through. Have a moment of quiet and then the music group will come up. God is speaking to me through his word. Repeatedly, week by week, day by day as you come to it. How can I listen? How can I better listen? Say to yourself, I'm totally dependent on God. What can I say? What might I want to say to the Lord about that? And thirdly, ask yourself, who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to please? And maybe you just think for a moment, what then do I need to pray?